Craven and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lean Whiskey. It is episode 30, a big round number. So it's good to be here. Thank you for listening. And it's great to be joined again by Jamie Flinchbaugh. How are you, Jamie? I'm doing well. I'm excited that it's fall. It's my my favorite season. I think we've covered that in, a, in an episode in the past, but um, really nice fall weather and spent a bunch of time at, at my alma mater, uh, Lehigh University. Um, not not any football. Um, I had a bye week, um, although it was the uh, the first week we didn't lose, so I'll I'll take that. <laughs> they uh, they are winless this year. They it's are not- touchdownless. Um, oh, so gosh. it's it's worse. It's worse than just winless. It's touchdownless. Uh, not going terribly well, but I that's okay. You know the uh, soccer team won yesterday and. Um, but we had we had some celebrations on campus, including inaugurating a, a new president, which is actually an alum, which is kind of really exciting. So I was on campus for for quite a bit this weekend um, and, and fall seemed to arrive mid weekend. So uh, <laughs> uh, which was which was which was kind of great. So um, so that was that's what's going on for me. What's uh, what about you? I, I was also back at the alma mater. I was back at Northwestern University. It was homecoming weekend. Fall was was there. It's the coolest air I felt in a while. But the rain mostly held off. The sun was out uh, Saturday, actually. So it was in the mid fifties. I'd call that football weather. I was bundled up more than <laughs> than people who are more used to that weather. I think. But Northwestern did win. Northwestern beat uh, Rutgers. Where we're three and three and it was good to be back. Um, you know, win or lose. Um, it was my 25th reunion delayed a year because of COVID. Nice. Um, so the good, the, the good thing about it was they did a combined class party for the classes of 95 and 96. And I know just as many people from the class of 96. So that right. was, that was a good, really good opportunity. Yeah. We've, we've, I don't say pushed back, but we've, we've had that discussion with the university numerous times because we all, hung out with friends in various different classes, but it's like, well, how do you, how do you do that? Do you just do a, you know, every, everybody's invited to every reunion or, or, or what exactly? So, uh, um, so yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice uh, opportunity. A lot of, a lot of schools are trying to catch up on missed events uh, one way, one way or another. Um, well, so, some, somebody was saying they, they had a friend who went, to Dartmouth, and they said by a matter of routine, Dartmouth has three-year groupings okay. of classes. So I don't know how you do how you would do the groupings because if I was class right. of '95, I know a lot of '94s and '96s. That would be great. Did the '96s want to have '97s and '95s? I, yeah. I, Dartmouth, That's, they're they're smart. I'm sure they figured out something that, Dar- that Dartmouth is. Uh, you know, and I don't know much about how they run things besides academics, but the. Uh, our new president was the provost at, at Dartmouth. They've been an incredibly innovative school when it comes to education, uh, which is which is great. Um, but I don't know much about you know how they do things like reunions. So that's yeah. that's interesting. Um, I, I know uh, my my wife actually sort of co-chairs our our class because we mm-hmm. we graduated together. 
Um, so, uh, so we'll, we'll see. I think she's glad not to, not to try to plan this when there's, you know, three other classes all trying, you know, everybody's stacked up and they're trying to do a bunch of reunions at once, but, um, yeah, but yeah, it's nice, nice to get back. And, uh, and yeah, you got to, you got to see a win. We might, we might get a touchdown one of these days, but uh, I, I don't know if a win is going is in our future. We'll we'll see. Um, one other comment about the the trip. Um, my we 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 flew back as we're recording this on Sunday. We flew back Sunday morning back to Los Angeles, and my suitcase is still in a state of barely gotten home. And she says it looks like my suitcase exploded purple because <laughs> it really was full of purple purple attire. I mean, this shirt has some purple in it. It's not the most purpley. I was wearing a purple jacket, so it's part of the purple explosion. Yeah, well, it's it's one of those colors that uh, uh, most people don't just wear by accident. So you you know, it's one of those one of those <laughs> things where people are like, yeah, let's do some purple, and it it, it stands out. Um, I, I I I'm not sure if I have any purple in my wardrobe, but uh, it's one of the you know yeah. You know, why would I? So there's got to be, you know, there's usually some school connection or, you know, we, we talk about, boy, you know, not to get, I won't get sidetracked on this, but in our polarized world of red and blue and purple, it's, you know, it's a, a come together color. So you that's, sometimes that's see true. news anchors on election day, they wear a lot of purple. That's true. That's true. Uh, another thing that I don't, I don't need. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but we were talking about celebrating, uh, homecomings and, and reunions and, and it's episode 30. It was th- this year is the 30th anniversary of me coming onto campus at mm-hmm. Northwestern. So 30 entered into things. Um, I'll give Jamie credit on uh, the stats here that we've done a lot of episodes together, but we've had 14 guests in different episodes. We'll certainly do that again. And Jamie says, we've sam- here, I'll let you read off the stat. You did the work to add this up. Yeah, well, so yeah, we'll cross 30 episodes, the 14 guests. And that doesn't count some of the people that chimed in on live episodes. That, that would be a much bigger number. Um, but uh, we've had 56 different whiskeys um, between ourselves and guests. Um, uh, so, so that's a pretty interesting. We, we did make efforts at, at, at sampling and diversity of, of options, and they've covered... <laughs> Five countries, and if I read the list correctly, seven states. Um, so, so that's 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 pretty good um, uh, across our, our thirty episodes. Trying to trying to keep it keep it interesting. Um, I am unfortunately, you know, uh, we'll, we'll talk about whiskey here in a second. But yeah, we we uh, I, I I am not adding to the list. I'm using a whiskey that I used before, but based on the theme we selected, uh, it was it was the one I was going to choose. So. Uh, uh, that, that's okay. It's also not the first whiskey we've had twice either. So, um, and, and I'll, you know, tying the celebrations together. I only just heard this a, a couple of hours ago. Um, it has nothing to do with most of our listeners, but it's a fun, fun celebration is uh, a soccer player. I used to coach, uh, many years ago. Uh, she became, uh, the fifth woman to score in a football game, kicking an extra point. Um, mm. Uh, this this past weekend, and you mean American football? It's confusing. I, I do. I do mean American football. football yeah. <laughs> so she's a soccer player who became a a, a football kicker in high school, and uh, is the f- for the fifth uh, woman to score in American college American football uh, by scoring an extra point yesterday. So uh, 
So that's a fun, yeah, fun celebration of someone who I remember when she was very little playing soccer. Oh, oh, well. Well, when you said extra point, I didn't need to jump in to clarify, I guess, but me not knowing enough about soccer football, I'm like, I'm trying to think, is there also an extra point? There, in there is soccer there is football. Point. There yeah. is just points. It's just points. Ball's either in the net or it's not in the net. <laughs> And the other statistic, and I guess this is worth celebrating, we, we did just reach a big round number, according to the podcast host, we are now over 10,000 all time downloads, 10,200. So we'll, we'll toast to that 30. Yeah, episodes absolutely. And- that's, a, that's a nice celebration number, a nice big, big milestone. Um, did not know that. So that's, thanks for sharing that. I, yeah, I, I know we've, we've never done that. You know, this isn't a marketing podcast. This is you and I having fun and, and sharing our ideas with, with, with other friends who listen, but um, I don't have 10,000 friends. So I think that's pretty, pretty cool. Um, I'm really excited to hear, uh, hear about 10,000 downloads mm-hmm. and, um, and, and thank you everyone who, who tunes in and listens. Um, yeah. Really, really appreciate it. So cheers to, Cheers to everybody out there listening. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening. And then we're going to come back and talk more about books. Jamie is celebrating the completion and and I guess we could say near publication, near release of uh, near near release. It'll be um, basically next week, October 26th is release day. Um, I only just got uh, copies that that. uh, that, that are not advanced reading copies like, like what you have. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, only just got those a couple of days ago. So yeah, very excited. First book in a very long time. Um, so excited to get it out. And so that's just another reason for me to celebrate. Hence our theme. We will toast to that. It is called People Solve Problems, The Power of Every Person Every Day. Every problem. For those of you who can see me holding it up on YouTube, it is not an intimidating book. It is easy to hold, easy to carry, easy to read. So, congratulations. We'll talk more about book stuff here. Um, in that celebratory theme, like Jamie and I had originally bounced back and forth the concept of, well, 30 episodes. We could drink 30 year whiskeys. This might be like the last big round number of an yeah. episode that we could get away with maybe even buying a bottle because it's we're not getting expensive. Year, yeah. We're not going to go buy 50 year whiskeys for, 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 for a podcast or probably any other reason. So I, I wouldn't get away with that. No, I, I, I'm, and I, and I, I think the return on that investment on a non-financial basis is just, just not there. So yeah, we, we looked at 30 year whiskeys. Um, it, it, it became almost a chore um, became hard to, Hard to find something that we could both pick up, um, you know, choices and shipping and not shipping local and what's available and what's affordable just became, it became, I don't want to say a headache, but it, it just wasn't going to work out. Um, Between the cost and then I'm going to shake my fist at our antiquated liquor laws and yes. distribution system and prohibitions on shipping into most places. I, I did find when I was back in Texas, local liquor store, cause it's, it's hard to find a 30 year bottle, yes. um, local liquor store, um, that we really like. It's a, a nice, uh, local shop. They did have a 30 year Balvenie, but the price was about a thousand dollars and I like Balvenie, but I think like you're saying, Jamie, there's diminishing returns when it comes to aging 
Yeah, because a 15 year is what, $70, $80, and mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, and and it's darn good. So, yeah. you know, is it, <laughs> it, you age it twice as long and it's, and it's more than 10 times better? I, 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 I don't think so. So sometimes it's just bragging rights or. Yeah. And I understand collectors gift who or, never yeah. plan on opening it and they love, you know, old whiskeys that are going to appreciate in value and sell to somebody else. But like, you know, whiskeys and cars, you know, I, they're not, they're not meant to be parked, uh, <laughs> driven whiskeys meant to be enjoyed. So, so we did, we kind of pivoted to simply, you know, what whiskey would you pull off your current shelf instead of buying something new, which we probably both don't need to buy something new. Uh, um, right. So what would you, what would you pull off your shelf if you're in the mood for a celebration? Um, so that's, that was the theme we went with. Um, now, now, interestingly, and we'll have some very, very different uh, choices, uh, both very good, but, but very different. You know, when I think about celebration and whiskey, my mind doesn't go to anything but a scotch. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's probably narrow thinking on my part, but it's just that's that's where my brain goes. Mm-hmm. I did for those on on video. I did grab some of my scotches. I have some unopened bottles and I have some some open bottles that most of which are actually are getting pretty, pretty low. Thank goodness I have some unopened bottles to, to co-enjoy. But that's, you know, if somebody said as we did, Hey, what bottle are you going to pull off to celebrate? I, I would, I'm not even sure I'd look at the non scotch side of my, my shelf. I just, yeah. I just go straight to the scotch and I wouldn't always choose. I, I did happen to this time, uh, mostly because it's already opened and I, and I like it. Um, but I did happen to choose the oldest one that I currently have on my shelf. I don't think that's an automatic, automatic rule. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for me, but uh, uh, as as you you know see, so there's some 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 whiskeys that I think age particularly well, like Dalmore. But um, yeah, so I, I chose a, a Glen Farkless. Um, that's not quite the Scottish accent. You properly said that. <laughs> I can't Starting do it including either. Including R's and C's in Scottish words, they come off yeah. very very uh, uh, very authentic when you done done right. But it's a 21 yeah. year old Glen Farkless. Um, that uh, I'll say it's about two thirds, two thirds gone, but uh, quite smooth. Um, you know, not not too strong in the peat category. Um, you know, lots of uh, lots of sort of softer. You know, without being sweet, lots of sort of candy tones, uh, a little butter and toffee and things like that. I'm I'm horrible at tasting notes, so don't mm-hmm. don't quote me on any of that. But it's you know not too much heat, not too much peat. Um, you know, good, good long finish, uh, you can really chew on. And so I, I do really enjoy this and I don't think, you know, again, as a 21 year old, um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't $500 either. Right. So it was pretty, pretty affordable for a 21 year old that I, I, I have no idea what the price was. I can't remember, but it wasn't, it was not ridiculous for what, what you do get in the bottle. Well, and Glenn Farkless is one of those brands that's not as well known in the US. So there's lots of hype. Pricing a lot of times is based on availability or scarcity or name reputation. Like I learned about Glenn Farkless in Scotland. Um, Even even Thursday night when I was in Chicago, I went into a really good whiskey bar. They had 850 different bottles they claimed. And 
No, I was looking for something unique and, and special and I ended up going different directions, but he pulled down the Glenn Farkless 25 year. And for the, you know, the, for the age, the Glenn Farkless is uh, pretty good value. I think it's just yeah, sort of I, less I hyped, so. underappreciated, but very good. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, I don't, I don't really care, but it's bottles could perhaps use a, use a redesign if, um, the, unless you're just like, yeah, I love it, classic designs. Some of the, it's classic. The others, it's you know, like like many Sazerac, uh, I assume owns them, uh, at least imports them, but I assume mm-hmm. owns them. But uh, uh, yeah, quite good, enjoying it um, quite a bit on our our celebratory episode thirty. Yeah, and and the beverage director was saying when you point to that classic look in the bottle, he was saying Glen Farkless was very popular in the fifties, mm-hmm. and then became unpopular, and then the distillery had a lot of old barrels on mm. hand they weren't selling and so right. they continue aging and there's been a little bit of uh, a renaissance but nice so what I, nice what was that yeah so uh, i wish i wish i could have a sip of that with you but mm-hmm. what i pulled down from the shelf and and, and if i have a second one it's going to follow the theme have we done a theme of uh, finish that bottle i don't think we've done it that yet i know we've talked about it um but i don't think we've done it yet we might do that theme because like, you know, when someone, the bottle's getting low and if it's been open a while, that's where it starts running the risk maybe mm-hmm. of oxidizing and um, trying to limit my, my purchases. If I finish one, maybe I, then I free up a space to buy one. Right. So today's bottle kind of falls into both of those categories. And this is one uh, my wife and I agreed on buying last year during the pandemic. We found it here in California. It's one of the, the special, it's a high-end release from Whistlepig which is based in Vermont. They use a lot of sourced whiskeys from Canada and some um, US whiskeys, but this is their release that they call the Boss Hog and there's a series. So there are different releases. This is um, number five and, and Jamie or anyone on video might appreciate you see the bottle topper and the, the nickname for this one is called the Samurai Scientist. So I thought that was, a, maybe we could connect dots to the lean part of lean whiskey Yep. Um, with the nod to Japan and, and being a scientist. This is a straight rye whiskey finished in Umishu barrels. Mm. And there's, um, and, and I should have looked at this in advance. I'll, I'll Google it. I think Umishu is a Japanese liqueur. It's a plum wine. I would okay. have been correct, but I, I Googled it anyway, just to be, try to be correct. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a high proof 60%. ABV. And I think we, my wife and I weren't, we like whistle pig and we weren't celebrating anything so much as we were soothing ourselves during the pandemic of like, right. we can't really, we can't go out in California. We're not spending as much money on going out and doing stuff. And let's, so let's, let's buy a special bottle. And so as that's gotten down to the bottom, there were a little over two ounces left. And I, uh, great. I shared it with my wife, she would have been upset if I had finished the bottle without her because we've both enjoyed this one. And um, maybe it's gestures like that that help because uh, we're, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary in two weeks. And if I if I was finishing the bottles that she enjoyed, I might not have made it to 20, right? Yes, yes, that's uh, another good celebration. Your, I know your anniversary and, and my birthday are, are very close in date. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Whistle Pig, which has been featured on here before, at least at least by one, at least by me, but I think perhaps by you too, maybe, maybe not. But Whistle Pig 
It's, it's one of those, it's very interesting. You know, I, I don't think of a rye even as being something, you know, where I love rye, but it's like, okay, a celebratory rye. That seems, that seems yeah. like a stretch, but every time I see a price for a whistle pig, I'm thinking there's no way it's worth it. And then I drink it. I'm like, yeah, it's totally worth it. Um, they do. They really do a good work up and down the line of their product line. Uh, really, really good stuff. I, I'm a, yeah. it, it's pretty rare. I don't have a bottle of something in their line. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never found one where I'm like, that's the one I'm going to keep getting over and over again. I like, I like to dabble anyway, but I, I think whistle pig is, is a, a really good producer. Well, and, and the less expensive whistle pigs um, are, are nice. So as you get up on the higher end and I, I misspoke, um, this is the sixth edition. Okay. I mean, so I, I do get skeptical, right? You get the, this. This was a five hundred dollar bottle. This is the most expensive um, whiskey I've ever bought. But you start getting to the point of like, you know, you have a box, right? With, you know, fancy opening mechanisms, and there's there's some origami in here, and you know, <laughs> I, I am going to keep this bottle topper because that's yeah, a heavy that's spectacular. Pewter, <laughs> That's 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 a keepsake. But you start seeing these more expensive whiskeys, you know, like, uh, well, uh, I, I get skeptical with, with, with so much packaging effort of like, what, what are they covering up for? But I think a bottle like this would often be given as a gift. And so maybe then packaging does matter more. Yeah, I, I think it does. And I think it's it's also I mean. It, it's just like you buy an expensive car and people expect the, the pickups, you know, experience to be a little better. It's not really what you're paying for. They just kind of expect a little bit more. And, and um, yeah, I, I do think there is a trend of like putting mediocre juice behind interesting stories mm-hmm. and, and well-designed bottles and well-designed labels and creating a, a good Instagram buzz around the brand. But the juice is just, you know, typical sourced, uh, uh, non-craft uh, whiskey, yeah. and so that's that's pretty pretty common uh, these days with a lot of brands, um, a lot of the micro brands that have, have been built up over the last last ten years. But Whistle Pig is they, they are they're not they're not a design house; they're a whiskey yeah. house. They they know what they're doing, yeah. especially in the rye categories. But back to that question of value, like we've both really enjoyed this, and we've shared it with some friends who really appreciate whiskey, and they've enjoyed it. I'm not going to go buy, I'm not going to go buy another one for 500, the whistle pig yeah. 10 or 12 or 15, or if I want to get splurgy, the whistle pig 18 is fantastic mm-hmm. at, at, again, it looks like half the price. Right. So this, this question of does more aging really merit double, double the price? Um, maybe not, but we did it. I, I don't regret it, but I wouldn't repeat it. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's good. Oh. I don't mean to bad mouth it, but that's just, that's my preference on it. And, and I think that's fair. Um, it, it's, it's okay. It just, just because you wouldn't repeat it doesn't mean it wasn't worth it. So, um, you know, sometimes it's just something you got to experience and the experience was worth it and, you know, you enjoy it and you'll, you know, especially as you'll keep the, the bottle topper, um, mm-hmm. probably always remember the bottle. You may not really remember what it tastes like, but uh, you'll remember you enjoyed it. I mean, it's like some vacation spots. You can enjoy a vacation and say, yeah, but I don't think we would go back. That doesn't mean it was a bad vacation either. Right. You're just going to do something else next time. And that's that's what I love about, you know, whiskey and, and wine as well is, is the the exploration, right? I, I think the exploration is, 
more interesting than just, you know, finding something you like and sticking with it. I mean, the idea of, oh, there's one bottle that you can, it's the only bottle you ever have on your shelf again. Yeah. Like that's not appealing to me at all. Like I love, I love the exploration. There's very few bottles. I know I have a Lagavulin 16, which is probably one of the bottles that almost always finds a spot on my shelf Mm -hmm. as a go-to. That's but, uh, yeah. but even that it'll last a while. Cause I'll, I'll dabble in other stuff. So, um, I think the, uh, you know, the journey, you know, the, the journey and the exploration is, is most of the fun. <laughs> well, and then just real quick, you talk about exploration. Uh, we, my wife, I don't have it handy. My wife and I did buy the boss hog seventh release, which is a Magellan theme. And it was aged in um, teakwood barrels, which I've never heard of. That's mm. really unique. But then yeah. similar to like the Jefferson's Ocean bourbon, like right. they, they, they put the barrels on a ship and it circumnavigated the globe. Nice. Um, so <laughs> nod to Magellan. And nod to Magellan, another- nod to Jefferson's. Um, yeah. <laughs> Because it, it does. I mean, I, I can't remember if we've had Jefferson's on the show. Um, I know I've been through a couple of the ocean aged bottles, but uh, mm-hmm. it's pretty good. It's pretty good stuff. We'll have to go look at the spreadsheet. Jamie has a spreadsheet. That's where he pulled some of the stats from. We do have for how many guests and what how, how many whiskeys. Yeah, we do have a spreadsheet. Um, I was talking to somebody about my soccer referee and and they're like, well, do you keep data? I was like, well, I've had, you know, uh, 26 games and 157 goals and you know 18 different clubs so like yeah I'm pretty sure I have the pretty sure I have the data um but yeah I don't I don't see uh I don't see Jefferson's Ocean uh on here I have not had a bottle for a little while so uh we'll see um I don't know what the theme is that that brings that one out but uh yeah it's it's a it's a fun one so the Magellan that, that that's an interesting uh Interesting take on a special on a special aging process. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so fun fun experiments. Whether it's the samurai scientist or just whiskey, bourbon, rye—I should say rye because it's whistle pig. Whiskey scientists, um, like our friend Dave Meyer. In fact, my my yeah. in laws just visited. They went back to see Dave and Glens Creek Distilling um, this past week. So they're coming nice. home with more Cafe Ole, which comes in full 750 bottles now, by the way. Yes, yes, I have one. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad that he's, he's bottling in the bigger, I'm sure more expensive, bigger bottles now. But uh, uh, it means you don't, you, don't, you don't have to feel like you uh, have to savor it so, so much because it's in a tiny little bottle. So that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we kind of move on to some of what, what we were celebrating with the, uh, the mention of my book being one of the things that, that I'm in a celebratory mood for. Um, it'll be good to have, I mean, I really don't have much work to do now other than grant a few interviews, mm-hmm. but, uh, I, but, but sort of a lot of work uh, came out. So we normally cover in the news. Um, so we thought we'd cover, you know, on the bookshelf. Um, and and start start talking about about just books in general, right? Just mm-hmm. a, a chat about books. We've talked about this. Um, you know, you're you're more both more recent experiences and more experiences than I've had, and and so even numerous times throughout this this process, I've I've reached out to you for 
for a little advice here and there and mm -hmm. uh, a few questions. There's a lot of ways to get this wrong. <laughs> um, and uh, so we've, we've both written a couple of books. You've written more than I have, as I said, but uh, uh, books are, um, uh, you know, not just writing books, but consuming books. It's a sort of fascinating topic. Mm -hmm. um, There's an Abraham Lincoln quote uh, that, that, that I enjoy. Uh, book, books showed a, or served to show a man that that those original thoughts of his aren't very new after all. Um, <laughs> Why is that? Because you discover in your research that others have had those ideas and you've learned from them. Well, and 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 ultimately, I think that's you know it's it's so many things you can kind of go oh Plato right um, yeah. and, uh, and and. And there is value in, in, I'll say, different articulation, new combinations, right? Just like there's, oh, there's no new foods. Well, there's new combinations, yeah. um, new combinations, new articulations. There's new, some new insights for sure. Um, but, but there's a lot of value in going back and, and reading some of the historical thought leaders uh, if, uh, to, to borrow a more modern phrase uh, in the process. So. so so let me ask you to that point, you know, how much of the book, and again, it's called People Solve Problems. I mean, how much of the book is based on your experiences, your clients' experiences, and how much is based on research and other thoughts that you're bringing together and connecting the dots on? Yeah, so, so primarily... I'll say it's almost a hundred percent based on my experience working with working with clients and working with individuals. You know, our, our the last book, which I wrote with Andy Carlino, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Lean, which was also called, you know, subtitle was Lessons from the Road. And that was a nod to the fact that we, you know, we had earned this knowledge through our our travels. Um, I'm not against research books by any stretch of the imagination, mm -hmm. but I, I definitely did research. So A, I, as I research things in general, as I read things, I try them out, I integrate them with other things. I'm always looking for connection and crossover points. That's just who I am. Um, I love footnotes, right? I mean, I'm writing footnotes, but you kind of like, oh, here's a footnote. Let me go read that book. Yeah, go dig in. Yeah. Yeah. But there, there were, there was a few chapters where I, I probably, uh, I knew where I wanted to go, but I, I did a little more research to help articulate it. Some of it was just reading stuff to help inspire my, my brain to make the right, you know, the right neurons click uh, to find the, the, the words and the way I wanted to combine them. So, uh, but it's not, yeah, it's very much not a research book. It's very much an experience-based book. Um, and, and, taking lessons from, from, from my observations, from my experiences, from my coaching, et cetera. So definitely more that kind of a book. Mm -hmm. And when you think about having a book, you, you want to benefit the reader and we'll, we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about the process and all the different stages of bringing a book to market, but you know, you already have a book and, um, you know, a lot of consultants talk about uh, you know, you've got to have a calling card. That book puts a stake <laughs> in the ground. It's 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 some legitimacy and something to share in advance or as a way of um, trying to help drum up business. You already have that. And I think it was a very good book on, on all these counts. Good for the reader. Good for you. Um, but so I guess there's two parts here. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you a question, but. You know, why, why write this one and, and what are your thoughts on, you know, other other consultants? How important is it to have a book? 
Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's an interesting question. People ask me that, you know, even outside the lean world, just you know, oh, I want to write a book. I'm saying, okay, why? Right. So, <laughs> what do you what do you hope to accomplish? But you know, for me, actually, the first the first and foremost reason, and I truly do believe this, is it's a process of it's a systematic process of clarifying my thinking. And, and so, you know, that, that's what people pay me for. Right. Um, and, and I, I'm, I'm fairly well known for the fact that I don't use PowerPoint when I present, mm-hmm. I, I just speak with a digital whiteboard and, and off I go. And I, I kind of argue that, you know, you really got to know your stuff. If you're going to do, if you're, if you're going to stand up in front of a crowd or stand in front of a computer monitor with a few hundred people and, and, and just, I'll say it's not that I'm winging it, but just, mm-hmm. Just speak with a, a blank sheet of paper. Uh, you got to know your stuff. And to me, writing a book is a great way to know your stuff. Um, you 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 clarify your thinking. How do you speak about it? How do things connect? What matters? And and so for me, that's that's the number one reason. Um, I, I think that there are two others. You know, one is one is. Uh, of course, marketing, right? You, you know, new people read the book and then they're like, they call you and say, oh yeah, we I read your book. I liked it. I, I found limits to that. That, that, that was never a big, uh, a big driver. Um, it, it seemed, I mean, lots of people I've, I'd eventually work with had read the book, but that's not why mm-hmm. they called. Um, but I think more importantly is your, your credibility when you do show up, Right. Whether that affects, you know, the prices you can charge or it affects the the uh, the ability to scope it on your own terms or uh, the uh, how many times you have to repeat yourself before the client listens to you. right? Uh, whatever yeah. form credibility shows up in um, uh, shows up as and through, I think the credibility of the book. Uh, you know, helps, you know, I'll say lend it back to, uh, back to the, the consultant, the coach, the advisor, the speaker in, in, in whatever of those cases. So yeah. those have been some of my arguments. Um, and so I'd say first clarity of thought, second credibility and third uh, marketing. Um, yeah. I- but you've, you've written books, you know, pretty broadly, you know, you cover measures of success um, which my, 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 my desk is lower. It's, it's, it's up on the bookshelf, right up, right up above the screen or practicing lean, which is also right mm-hmm. next to it, which is a compilation. And you, you, you contributed a chapter to that. So thank contributed you. a chapter, right? Not quite like pulling the book together, but, mm-hmm. um, and, and of course, you know, lean hospitals, which is, um, I mean, you can tell if it's, it's, if it's the most popular of your books, but it's probably the most, uh, most quoted, um, it's, it's now, I mean, uh, I think it is the most popular okay. in terms that's, of sales. That's what I it's been out the longest also since 2008. Yeah. With the first edition. Okay. But, I mean, with those books, e- e- each and every case, like you said, there's the ability to clarify your own thinking. So I think, you know, to, to say, I'm going to write a book, you have to feel like you know enough about a subject and can convey in a helpful, interesting, unique way, some combination of all of that. But then the process of writing, like you said, does help clarify how you articulate it. And 
you know, trying to be, I don't think of, again, this bottle, the samurai scientist, how, how can you be a scientist or an experimentalist with a book? I've become a big proponent. We'll, we'll talk more about this, some of this process later on of, you know, treating a book as a startup and trying to do experiments and get real feedback from real readers. Will they buy it? Do they think it's um, clear? What price are they willing to pay? Those are all things that you can experiment on. And one of our other points we're going to come to later is the question of self-publishing versus going through a traditional publisher. I think self-publishing gives you way more opportunities to experiment because I don't think I haven't met a publisher yet who's into any of that. They are pretty yeah. set in their ways and you may come into conflict. But you know, I, I think having that 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 clarity of thought, you know, when I was able to co-author the the healthcare Kaizen book with Joe Schwartz, then the, there's this double impact of combining our experiences, learning from each other, using each other as a sounding board for what, what's clear and helpful and compelling. And then you know, with measures of success, there were a number of experiments that happened there. And, uh, you know, one, one of the advantages is, you know, if you want a book as a calling card, having a less expensive calling card mm -hmm. is advantageous and self-publishing the economics of that give you, um, a, yeah, I can give away a copy of measures of success as a full color book, far less expensively than I could give away a copy of lean hospitals, which went through a publisher. Right. Yeah, and I, I think there's the experimentation with clients, how the book is used. Um, I think there's also just the experiment of, of the ideas of how they come together. Um, now, it's a fairly costly experiment, uh, just from, from an effort standpoint, right? Um, mm -hmm. And we're always talking about how to make, how to make uh, experiments cheaper. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's a better question for you than it is for me, just because you have a, a much more mature and well-established platform for this. But, you know, you have numerous podcasts and you have, you know, uh, uh, most popular blog in the, in the lean world. Um, why, why write another book? Why not just put a bunch of content out in a, mm -hmm. in a, in a blog setting yeah. where people can access it too? So, so what would be the argument for again, you you've you've put a lot, you've put a long, long time into establishing those, those mm -hmm. platforms, um, just like publisher establishes their platforms. Yeah. But what's what's what, what do you think of as the difference between, oh, I have an idea, let me publish it as a book versus mm. just publishing more content on the blog? I mean, that's a good question. Um, I mean, like you know, during pandemic times, a lot of people rolled rolled up their sleeves <clears throat> and wrote wrote. A book or wrote another book. I decided to put more energy into projects like My Favorite Mistake and the work that I'm doing with the firm Value Capture, including their podcast, Habitual Excellence. Yeah, I think you can do both because I've blogged a lot about process behavior charts and applications. And some of those things I had blogged about then got adapted to be examples in the book. Mm -hmm. I've done webinars. That's another format. I mean, somebody could learn the entire methodology based off of um, webinars that are free, blog posts that are free, templates that are free, whether that's Kaizen or measures of success topics or, or lean topics. But I, I think at some point 
you know, maybe, you know, people want the convenience of, well, hey, here's something that's packaged up in a neat format that's easier to carry around and share with somebody. You know, I, I used a book coach. And one thing that she does is help bloggers recraft blog content into a book. And it's not just grab a bunch of posts and put them in sequence. Like right. you know, Jim Womack did a book, Gimbo Locks. It was basically just Which was that? <laughs> a series of, he didn't call them blog posts, but his e-letters. And there, there, there was editing and there was. sequencing and what to do. But Kathy Fayok, my book coach, helps people. Like, you know, I, I think of what Lean Hospitals was. That was not a collection of blog posts, but the blogging that I'd been doing about Lean in a way was practice. I didn't take any of that material and put it into a book. But, you know, I think you can give a lot away for free. And then there are some people that are willing to buy it. Like, the, you know, there's this other um, approach, other, other comment I was going to make, you know, you look at companies. What should you put on your website for free? What should you put behind a registration form as a PDF? What should you try to put into a book that you might uh, sell? And, and the argument like you know, from the company HubSpot or this methodology that's been used really well by Kinexus, I'm, I'm helping value capture with this methodology now, is give it away for free because that makes it searchable and findable. But then you say, well, if you'd like this in a neatly packaged PDF, you pay for it by giving your contact information. Like that's a small price mm -hmm. to pay. And then you think as um, as a company, somebody who's willing to give you their contact info is probably more interested than the person who just stumbled across the web page and read it. So anyway, that was kind of a rambly answer to your question. It, it, it could be a bunch of ands instead of ors. You know? Yeah, no, I, I think you're I think you're right. And and I also think whether it's for for you, the writer, or for or for the listener or for, for the reader, it, it's what how do you want them to experience it? Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think, of you know, a blog post. It's meant to be a nugget. There aren't supposed mm -hmm. to be like a, a theme and, you know, and, and supporting, you know, themes underneath it, backed up by other bullet points. Like it's, it's, all, it's kind of like a nugget, right? Yeah. And, and I want to share a nugget and I hope somebody takes away a nugget. And that's very different than both as a writer. I want to think deeply about this topic. I want to tear it apart, put it back together and 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 do that a couple of times to really see how how the how the web is 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 woven and and I think for the reader it's the same thing right I want to go into this topic a little deeper than grabbing a nugget like I might get nuggets out of it but I want to stay with it longer I want to unravel it I want to force my brain to do a little you know uh, free free form thinking and reflection and, and so I think even on the consumer side, it's the same thing. Why, why not just grab a video on this or why not just grab a couple blog posts? Why read the book? Well, you want to stay with the topic a little longer. And, yeah. and that, um, that, that drives, I think, a lot about, you know, when to use which medium. So then, you know, I, I still like keeping on this theme of thinking of a, a book as a startup. You have a concept. Should you move forward with that concept? And, you know, I think of the questions, I think you're familiar with Steve Blank in the startup world of, can I build this product? Thinking of the book as a product, can I build it? And should I build it? I think a lot of times the answer to the question of, can I write this book may very well be yes. 
should I write this book? That That's harder to answer in terms of, is there a market for it? Do you care? Right. Some people write right. a book saying, well, I, I, I was like that with measures of success. I didn't expect it was going to be any huge bestseller, but I enjoyed writing it. I'm proud of the book. I learned a lot in the process. But how, how did you think through this question of, like you knew from writing a book before, you could do it. How do you decide yeah. the should question? Although it, it was it was very different because um, I was writing before eBooks and and it, process was different. You know, we'll come back to process, but um, you know, I, I didn't. I wanted it to be financially successful. Um, I wasn't looking to get rich off it. I think the idea that people make a lot of money writing business books is just there's some out there that do for sure, um, but. Uh, uh, those those books are unicorns to use a different startup really expression. The book that you're going to find on sale at the airport bookstore. Those are very yeah. few. Yeah, they are. So, you know, I, I like it to be a financial success. I've only recently been collecting all the expenses related to it just to kind of find out mm-hmm. somewhere down the road. But interestingly, I didn't I didn't have you know a lot of market people read drafts of the book, meaning people who I intended the book for and kind of go, oh, do you like this? Do you not? One is, is how valid is that? Right. So you, you need validity in the experiment. And I'm sure there's a lot of people I could find and be like, yeah, I like it. Yeah. Great book. Yeah. They just, you know, being polite or, or they know me already. And, mm-hmm. and, and so how many books do you need to put in front of people before you really have some market validation? I, I don't know the number of, of that. Yeah. And, and so yeah, I looked at it like, like I would, I don't want to say I didn't care. That would be a strong statement. Mm-hmm. I, I would be okay with it not being a commercial success um, because my main reason for writing it was sharpening my thinking on this topic. Um, and, and for me, it was, it wasn't that it was cathartic. It was just my, my brain had been, uh, sort of, I don't want to say skipping along, but had been doing, you know, helping at the surface level um, with a lot of repeat stuff for too long. And mm-hmm. the idea of let's let's break, let's crack the thing open and go explore a different thread, think deeply, which I would usually do for three to five days at a time, just you know, reading, reading and writing, reading and writing, reading and writing mm-hmm. for, for days at a time, thinking deeply about something that that it was more about that um, from what it would give me. So, again, I want it to be a commercial success. Again, mm-hmm. I don't want to say I didn't care, but it wasn't a wasn't a prerequisite requirement for me to go forward, despite unlike when you go through a publisher, I mean, you, you have the cost of your time. But right. when you're when you're publishing, you have more cost of cash also. Mm-hmm. Right? That so upfront investment. Should, yeah. Should you invest in that product financially or not? And uh, I was still OK with like, OK, it doesn't matter. I want I want to do this yeah. and. And it will be what it is. Yeah. But, you know, I think I, I I've treated a couple book projects now. As, as a startup or as a, a quote unquote lean startup to use the, the Eric Reese phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you know, Jamie, with the book Practicing Lean, there were a couple elements there that were very experimental. And even the early versions of Measures of Success, I did both of those books 
through a platform called leanpub.com where you, you can right. publish initial chapters and people could vote with their credit card number to say, yes. I'm, I'm buying that. It's like buying futures on a commodity right. or a wine or something. Um, because it comes back to this question of validation. You know, you can follow, you know, I, I've adapted a tool um, that's used a lot in lean startup circles called the lean canvas to kind of sketch out what the book is, what differentiates it. Do you have competitors as books? What, who, who's the reader going to be like this, 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 uh, this is something I want to formalize maybe even as a book canvas or an author canvas, you know, single page sketching all of that out is your hypothesis, right? How do you it, validate the hypothesis? And I think you alluded to this earlier, Jamie, like there's the startup trap of like, you ask your friends and family and they're like, oh, that sounds great. Like maybe they're just being polite as opposed to somebody who feels strongly enough and really validates the idea, not as an opinion, but yeah, I'm willing to punch in my credit card or my PayPal. This is good. Yeah. And, and, and I've, I've experimented with lean pub as well. Um, not as much as you have, but uh, and I, I think I still have a product out there on it, uh, which was really meant to be an experiment. Let me just. Oh yeah. That was your A3 book. It was an A3 book, yeah. which is, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I'm embarrassed to, have out there, but I certainly don't put any, any promotion behind it, uh, but I think it's still there. That's um, good. But, but it was, you know, the question is, you know, does it have, what, what is market success, right? Do, do, mm-hmm. do people that find lean pub represent the market? Do people early buyers represent the, the larger mm-hmm. market that how to test the hypothesis and be valid is, is important. Right. And I, yeah. and I, I use the mm. lean canvas or the business model canvas, uh, mm. another term for the same thing. I actually teach it, um, yeah. not to clients as much, but I, I, I do an executive education workshop on it for, for Lehigh. And I, I talk to students about it, but a lot of times it's, you know, it's like, well, what, is your experiment valid? Or did you talk to your mm-hmm. 10 friends and they'd say they would buy it. Right. Um, well, there, there, there's risk. You talk about, I mean, gosh, even 20 plus years ago at MIT, they were talking about, you know, technology adoption curves. Right. What satisfies, what pleases your early adopters might not please a broader market. So you're right. You're, you're really making me think, Jamie, there's risk of if you focus so much on those early adopters and something that's perfect for them, that might not scale. Right. I mean, if you if you build, if you decide to make the hottest hot sauce in the world, <laughs> there will be some people yeah. that will fly across the world to go sample it. Yeah. And you'll be like, oh, I have a hit. Right. But you find out that, that you actually they weren't lead users. They were actually the entire market. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, right. You know, the, the 40 people that wanted that um, already you've already sold to. And 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 that's yeah. not a market validation. So are you trying to win an award for the hottest or the tastiest? Or are you trying to be the next Sriracha? Those are right. two different goals. Exactly. And, and I think knowing you know, knowing who you're writing for, knowing why you're writing it are important things. You know, for me, like I'm, I'm writing for, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm writing for leaders, um, mm-hmm. you know, primarily. And, and, and I'm just going to grab a copy because I, I always want to get the words right on this. But my, my dedication essentially is, I said, this book is dedicated to every purpose-driven leader who aspires to craft an effective and resilient organization. 
in many ways, you go do a lean canvas or a business model canvas. Well, that's my customer, that person, mm-hmm. right? So it might be somebody that aspires to be that person. Um, it could be somebody that supports that person, but that is my primary core customer, right? So, so I, I think you do need to be clear about who your customer is, of course, what your channels are, how you're going to reach them, and your value proposition. Why, why this topic, right? Um, is is part of it, and uh, um, and so you know, I, I think you have to kind of be clear about the value proposition. If you write it primarily as a marketing tool, I think there's a tendency where you kind of go, "Well, you're your own customer." Mm-hmm. And your value proposition is convincing people that, you know, you're worth spending money on. And, and so does the book then have value? Like you wouldn't write it that way, of course. Right. But. Oh. I mean, but some people do, I've read some books where it's kind of off putting where it seems like the main theme of the book is how great the author is. Yes. No, no, no question. The book comes off that way. I, I just, I just don't know if they, intended to but if you go ask why they're really writing the book that is why and and so i think this comes down to in part you know if you go go look at um you know most books and and is it is it filled just filled with like examples of here's the the service we sell or the product we have or or just me right uh me 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 all the time those those can feel like you are the value proposition. And that's, that's not, that's why I think having a clear customer around your book is an important premise, right? And that's where I think the business model canvas or lean canvas for a book is an interesting idea. It's like, well, who am I writing this for? Everyone, right? So, you know, I even made clear in this, you know, I wasn't writing this for the lean community. I'm not against people in the lean community reading it, but the, the leaders I work with that I was kind of writing this for, some of them are doing lean. Some of them are starting to be lean, but don't understand it. Some of them are doing other things. Some of them don't care what you call it. They're just trying to make their, their team better. And, and so all of those were all leaders I was still writing for. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and measures of success is another example. It's not a lean book, right? It's um, uh, lean. That, and that was I, like like you said, lean people can read it, but that I wasn't, I was writing it for a broader audience. Like Karen Martin's books, I think are you know, a similar uh, approach. It's uh, deeply influenced by lean and lean people would connect with it. Yes. But you've got to try to help build. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, you reach out to a broader, a broader audience for sure. And yeah. and that's like thinking about like, whether it's in software Understanding your users, or you know, marketing, uh, you know, HubSpot and other marketing approaches talk about your your personas. You, you've got to think of the reader when mm-hmm. you're writing, and then even more so as you're editing. Of like, is and, I, and I've been fortunate to have good editors. I know you worked with an editor. Maybe you can share some thoughts on this. But like, if if you were to write a lean book, I think you don't want it to be read by a bunch of people who already understand lean to answer the question, to validate the hypothesis that the, that, that the writing is clear. Like I've had editors who are closer to, to newbies, but that's who my audience, like, especially let's say for lean hospitals or for measure, well, for all my books, like 
These are meant to be introductory books. And so to validate the question of, is it clear or not, you got to be careful who's validating it. Yeah. And, and I've, I've always tried to be very good at writing without the assumption of base knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, some obviously experience, yeah, it's, it's not for, for just anyone, but, but it's, you know, you don't need a translator, you know, decoder ring. Um, I try to be as jargon free as possible. And even more so in this book than the hitchhiker's guide to lean, because at least that was about lean, right? So there's at least a, it it might've been people's first book about lean. um, And we know it was for a whole lot of people, um, but it probably also wouldn't be their only book about lean, but, you know, again, try to be very clear on, on limiting the jargon with, with this, this, this new book. Um, but, but yeah, a lot of it is around, you know, how do you want them to consume it? Um, you know, do, do you want them to struggle their way through it? And there's a lot of lean books I have on my shelf that are like, boy, that's a project, right? That is a hard read. Um, it might've been worth it, but I'm also not sure I would recommend it. <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah, you know how to how to how to get from point A to point B unless somebody just you know really wants to sort of geek out and read you know consume everything they can yeah. on on a particular topic. So I think it affects you know style as well. Like you know I, I kind of the Hitchhiker's Guide was a lot of people were like yeah I cr- cross country you know uh, two way flight and I, I finished the book and um, you know and I kind of wrote this with similar idea of consum- consumability. Um, yeah. I didn't want people to get stuck. I wanted them to, uh, to be able to get through it and find, uh, find wisdom, you know, wherever they would. Um, yeah. what, so when you talk about formats, you think about cross country or it could even be across the state. P- different people like to consume content different ways. Are, are, are you considering, do you have a hypothesis around doing an audio book? Like, do you think your book lends itself to that? Yeah. So, so the Hitchhiker's Guide, we, we published with SME, Society of Manufacturing Engineers, not, not because we went out on a search, but because they came to us and said, hey, would you like to do a book? I was like, well, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've said I did. And now you're asking, so why not? And then I had a contract and then I had a mm-hmm. deadline and that, okay. <laughs> get the thing done. So, um, but, you know, in a a lot of ways, and I, and I appreciate everybody there that, that, you know, was behind us and supported us. Uh, It was a great team. I really enjoyed working with them. The editing was fantastic. Um, But, you know, they they don't generally produce these kinds of books. Um, Mm -hmm. They they do, you know, books like, uh, like, Grab something off my shelf, uh, like like really deep technical, deep technical like stuff. Validating right? automotive three hundred electrical systems. Volume twenty-two. Or, yeah. Right. So, yeah. so um, it didn't have much international distribution. It did not have any language translation. Um, did not even little things like it came shrink wrapped for, for like the longest time. I actually don't know if it still does. Like. <laughs> Why? Like, like I'm just spending time well, taking the drink wrap. Off. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have had books get damaged in transit. So maybe the sure. Yeah, it just seemed like extra, but uh, yeah. it, it, but it, you know, it, it took a while to get it Kindle edition. And then I, I didn't agree with, 
a few things there because Kindle didn't exist when we when we actually wrote the book. Right. Um, and then there was never an audiobook version. So with this, basically hardcover, paperback, and ebook will all mm-hmm. publish October 26th. And I'm pretty sure the audiobook is done. Oh, okay. Um, it is being it is uploaded. We're just waiting for it to be approved. So the goal is to have that actually released mm-hmm. on the same day. So oh, good. And 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 we had, I mean, even I, even as I was teasing the book on LinkedIn, people were like, "Hey, I hope you have an audiobook version." Right. <laughs> and, and people have said that about the Hitchhiker's Guide for years. And it's like mm-hmm. I just kind of shrugged my soldier shoulders, like, "Not much I can do about it." Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll read it to you, but um, I mean, we, uh, I, I don't think I mean, there's a great uh, read it to them. Yeah, I mean, I, I I was happy to, so I'm happy to hear that. You know, we we did an audiobook version uh, for Practicing Lean, which I think totally that book lent itself to that because it was a collection of stories. Like very few yeah. of the contributors even included pictures or anything. Like it was very, it was a very text story driven book. I've had people asking, you know, for the longest time, you know, for an audiobook version of Lean Hospitals. Now, that that's a book that does tend to have a lot of diagrams and photos and illustrations. And how do you how do you handle that? Like clearly there are ways to handle that. My publisher had said basically, yeah, if you want to do an audiobook, knock yourself out. <laughs> but then I have to start thinking of that as a startup and trying to think of, well, what's the time and effort and expense? And what's the expected return? I, I haven't looked at it close enough, clearly in a way that would convince me to do it because I haven't. But I've had people ask me for measures of success, and there's that's one where I'm like, oh no, 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 like that. Yeah, that one I could imagine. I, being, it would I don't be know really. It would it would have to be so abridged and watered down. Lean hospitals could be done in a version, maybe it could be, longer. but but measures of success. Um, if you could describe the pictures clearly <laughs> in words, you probably would have done that. So, uh, no. um, but it's, it's, um, no, I didn't read it myself. I, I, I paid professional, okay. well, um, mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, professionals are, are, are good at that. Um, that's what they do. And, and, um, it's time reason, consuming. It, well, it's time consuming. I, I, I actually thought about, if that was the right answer, I would have been okay with it. But the other thing is, I, I think I would have been so critical of myself. Mm. You know, it would have been. There's a lot of things like the video. I'm like one take. You know, it's just like yeah. we'll give it. We'll give it the best best we can do, and that's that's that. Um, but with this, I feel like I might have you know redone and redone and redone. Not really known what I was listening for. Even little questions like they'd ask me, "Well, do you prefer this or that?" I'm like, "I, I don't know. You tell me. Yeah. You're you're well, you know more about this than I do." Yeah. So, so I'm like, "All right, let's get let's get professionals behind it and and let them do their thing because that's what I tried to do for everything else in the book." Well, and, and and that's really what self publishing is about. What do you do yourself versus what do you hire others to do? Like self publishing doesn't necessarily mean do it all yourself. We yep. have all these decision points around, um, uh, you know, the illustrations or uh, marketing or a website or different things. Like you could do it yourself, maybe, or you, you need to pull in others. I'm thinking just of audiobooks. Um, Re- Katie Anderson read hers. 
And I think she also then like very much self-published. Karen Martin read her books, but that was through a publisher. So I think, you know, there, there are different pieces of the value stream that different writers, authors, self-publishers get involved in or stay involved in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think um, it might lead us to want to talk about the, the publishing models because um, we've been sort of teasing that for a while. Um, you know, publishers have their model, right? If you go to a publisher, they have their model. Now, there are, a lot of them are weaker than they used to be, right? The, the, the publishers don't have the clout they used to have because they, they made their money with the distribution and, and, and uh, with their own marketing and promotion. And so it, it just didn't, um, you know, that, that they, they, they earned their money, uh, quite frankly. And they also owned the channel. So it just made sense. Right. Um, right. Then not, not, not sound too much like Karl Marx and who owns the means of production, but right. it used to be they the did. publishers were totally a gatekeeper. They own the printing presses. Like now they outsource a lot right. of things, but authors needed publishers. Needed. And now yeah. I think it's almost completely in reverse. Publishers need authors or what are they publishing? What are they making right. money from? Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, the the you go look at the publishers and and they you know what they would do is all of these things if you kind of go hey what does it take to get a book to print and publishers like well we know we, we know the answer to that you you don't have yeah. to watch you don't have to i mean there's a lot of books out there on how to publish a book right so there's <laughs> books right. and courses and coaches and others it's like publishers just like yeah we'll do it all we'll we'll tell you what's what has to be done when and we'll tell you what you need to do and we'll tell you what we're going to do. And as with anything, the way we've always done it could be good or it could be just old habits. Yeah. And, and I ran into, into both, right. I, I, with, with SME, there's some things that how they did things, because it's not just publishers, it's which publisher and what their, what their current evolution is in particular um, but there are things where I'm like, yeah, I don't don't like that. Um, at the same time, like, you know, Rosemary was was our editor, extremely thorough. Uh, she's retired now, but extremely thorough, very meticulous. Every little word got it right. Now, it didn't provide any structural, like didn't give us any feedback on the structure. Or was this right? Did this flow just but just editing, just getting it right. Very, very good. Was in their offices doing, you know, layout and and things like that, um, and and so you know, publishers, I think, and, and a lot of that stuff costs money, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not doesn't come for free unless you do it yourself, in which case you you have to learn yourself and either educate yourself and be really smart at it or publish enough books that you make enough mistakes that you get good at it over time. It, it, it costs time and blood, sweat, and tears, or it costs money to hire somebody who already has some of that experience. Right. Yep. And, and so I think public traditional publishing, there, there was probably a couple I would have considered going with um, because they did bring something to the table that perhaps I couldn't just go do myself, but not not the route I went with book number two. Right. Book number one, I, I don't think I would have gone any other route. 
back then, um, yeah. or even just being book one. I'm not sure I would have gone any other route. But book two, I felt like I had a little more education, a little more experience, and uh, wanted a little more control. And so yeah. those things led, led to a different path. Yeah. And and I've evolved, shifted from using a publisher for lean hospitals and then for healthcare Kaizen and then for the executive guide to healthcare Kaizen, which is sitting behind me. And then practicing lean was my first experiment was self-publishing. And that was other than the help from the lean pub platform, there was a lot of self. And then measures of success was more of a model, I think, like what you follow, Jamie, where I was the general contractor, I was the project manager, but I had a lot of companies and contractors that I selected and, and worked with in, in partnership. And, I, and there, there are many, many pros and cons. Like there's, there's this question of control. You sign a contract with a publisher, you may not agree on what the title should be. You may not agree on what the cover should be. You probably won't agree on what the price should be. Like there are all of these different decisions. Um, there are pros and cons. There are cycle time considerations. Like mm -hmm. I, the traditional publishing model seems to be completely batch and queue and very time consuming. And depending on the book, like if, if you were writing a book that was really super timely or you had business benefit from getting it to market sooner than later, self-publishing with the assistance of contractors, I'm convinced will bring a book to market much more quickly than the traditional publishing house would. So, you know, there, there, there are pros and cons. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, self, the true full self-publishing model, um, you know, you have a lot of control and, and, I definitely wanted some control. I mean, there with my old book, I actually had an incident and I won't go into any details, just somebody wanted to buy the copyrights of the book from the publisher. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they said no. Um, but, uh, but, but I actually, you know, I'm, I think they could have, right. They, they could have sold was, the book. Was the copyright in the publisher's name? Yeah, it, it almost always is, right? The, yeah, the, I, the, the I, I've gotten good. I've gotten good advice, even with lean hospitals. Of yes, the initial contract from the publisher will list them as the copyright holder, but that's one thing you can push back on and say, no, I want the copyright in my name. Because if the publisher goes out of business or stops right. printing it, you yep. want to make sure you have ownership of the IP. Yep, and it's and I think that's one of the things that's changed as self publishing has come come along, but. Uh, uh, but yeah, in a lot of cases, they, 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 they either start out owning it or they, they just, they just do. Um, and that's not the only reason it's the, again, that, you know, I would have loved to have an audiobook version, but they weren't willing to do it. And, and so it was just, just, just never happened, but self-publishing is, you know, fraught with mistakes. It's easy to look like an amateur because mm -hmm. you are one, right? I mean, you kind of go, there, there's certain things that professionals learn how to do through training and experience. And, yep. and if you don't have it, then you're going to look like an amateur. And if you're okay with that, <laughs> that's fine. Right. Sure. If it, you want to rapidly learn and you feel you're pretty good at rapidly learning, then that's okay too. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, I, I think the, the idea of the self publishing is, is, is fine for a lot of people. 
um, works quite well because um, in the end, they just want to get their stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, that's great. They can do it cheaply. They just got to do the extra work um, yeah. to get there. And, and that extra work could include website, public relations efforts, publicity, but I mean, you, you you can hire people to do that. And a lot of times if you go through a publisher, you still end up having to kind of go above and beyond to hire people to do things the publisher may not be willing to do. And, and I think just the other thing to think about, the other point I'll make is when you publish yourself, like, you know, you get set up through Amazon and or a printer, like I use Ingram Spark yep. to print. Um, copies, but then I also have Amazon print copies that Amazon is selling because that supply chain seems to be streamlined in different ways. But mm-hmm. like you, you see, you can, to a fault, you can look at daily sales data and you yeah. can start seeing if you want to start evaluating cause and effect of different promotional efforts, um, PR, publicity efforts, you can start seeing those connections and then Amazon will pay you monthly traditional publisher sends you a, re- a report twice a year. Yeah. yeah I and got, payment I twice quarterly, a year. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah no, nothing better than quarterly and you just, you, you don't get much data, right? Because they're not, they're not looking at it by day and, mm-hmm. and they're further back in the chain. So they're not looking at point of sale either. They're looking at their wholesale orders. Um, ah, right. So, so their data is not even good enough to begin with, but the, the sort of hybrid model is point around, you know, hiring people. I, I think there's just different degrees of that. Um, you talked about being your own general contractor. I, I actually, it's, I don't, I don't, it's, it's way I'm saying this makes me sound like an innovator. It's not, it's just a different model, uh-huh. but I actually hired a general contractor. Yeah, you can, you can do that. Yeah. You can do that. Yeah. Bethany Brown is her name, did a great job. And she's, and, and she put the other resources together, right? So we still had somebody doing layout. Now I had found two resources myself uh, before I even I even got around to working with Bethany. Uh, one is Rob Worth, who mm-hmm. you actually introduced me to. Yeah, I know Rob. He's and, in the UK. Yeah, in the UK, has a lean background, understands the topic, and he did a structural edit, which really changed the flow of the book, which was which was great. It really added a lot of value. And then uh, um, I'll only say her first name, Laia, because uh, I'm going to probably butcher her second name. She's actually in, in Portugal, another lean person, um, a lean oriented person who did the illustrations. Because mm-hmm. um, it was it was one of these where like I had a few illustrations in mind. I felt like lightening the book just with some extra illustrations. So I I didn't even provide a lot of direction. I was like, I like your style. Read the book. Make some illustrations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And 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 like bring it to life because I, I liked I liked how she how she did things and and um and and so you know those were resources that I found. And so there's there's uh in the end a lot of the skilled and experience-based pieces of putting a book together, I didn't I didn't try to learn myself. I yeah. I simply tried to be a good judge of talent, if you mm-hmm. will, and then brought people in. And that cost me money, right? Obviously, I yeah. paid talent. And so I definitely invested more in, well, in the upfront of this book than I did my last one. Um, uh, so, and that's, but, 
one of the, you know, you have publishers will pay for some of it themselves. Uh, you can do all the work yourself or you can pay for somebody to do your, so the, yeah. the general contracting, you know, hierarchy is a pretty good analogy for mm -hmm. how to think about, you know, cost benefit and analysis, yeah. how much you're willing to do yourself and how much you aren't. And I think one other example um, that comes to mind, like when you are your own general contractor or you have someone serving as your general contractor, the subcontractors correctly view you as a customer. Yes. And the accountability on timing and performance and everything flows through that way. Um, I had hired company A to initially do the paperback interior layout design for the book measures of success. First couple of steps into that, I was long story short, not happy with the quality of their work. I was not happy with the timing. They weren't on time and I wasn't happy with the quality. And basically they're like, well, okay. You know, you know, they, 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 they had some extenuating circumstances slash excuses. They weren't fighting me. They apologized. And I was able to walk away from that. So it caused a, a, maybe a month's delay, mm -hmm. but I was able to then go to company B that I ended up being very happy with. And, you know, there, there's risk of like, you know, if you're, you're working with a publisher, you're, you're kind of locked in to what yeah. the, again, like you may, it may be harder to resolve that conflict. Because the people doing the work aren't, uh, aren't, you know, you're not their customer, right? The, 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 the person inside the company is their, mm -hmm. their boss or their customer. Um, and, and even my example of using, you know, using Bethany to lead a lot of the project was she had a lot of relationships. Nobody wants to mess with those relationships. Nobody cares if they mess with a relationship with me, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not bringing them enough business where if they have a disappointing engagement, fine, there's another customer out there. But with this person sort of leading this, they all want to help keep make it good for each other, right? And this sort of this ecosystem. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's pretty cool because they have more freedom. They're, you know, they're all freelancers. They all work together. They, they, they all want to, you know, do a good job for each other. And so it's been a, it's been a pretty darn good experience. I, I would say, yeah, other than other than the fact that I did spend a lot of money and that's that's that was a conscious choice. I'm not complaining about it. Other than that, I wouldn't hesitate to follow the same model again. Yeah. I I I wouldn't hesitate either. And um to other potential authors out there, we're we're happy to talk with you. Um I've had a lot of conversations with potential authors and we've we've covered some of the same ground we covered today. And some other points, but one one other thing we wanted to cover um, before we start wrapping up was just around titles, like coming up with a title. <laughs> it's hard to iterate on the title once the book is published. Like Steve Spear and his publisher is the only example I can think of. His book was initially his excellent book was published initially as Chasing the Rabbit, and then it got republished as The High Velocity Edge, which I don't know if that was a better title. <laughs> And I don't I, know and how I've they decide both, this. I've got both uh, on my shelf, both versions. Um, There's probably a third title that may have served him better because it's an amazing book. And like yeah. the first one is esoteric. The second one, I don't, I don't know if that really captures it either. It's a better cover design. That's that's that's. There's sure. a better cover design. But 
more uh, modern, but more to it than, than that. So it's, and it's, it's like picking a new title for your, you know, name for your company. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, like Jay Flinch, like uh, that's mine. And you think, well, that's not very original or creative, <laughs> but boy, that took a long time to get to mm-hmm. um, 17 different, you know, options. So, you know, do you, do you, do you have a title first and then flush, flush out a book? Do you come up with a title halfway through at the end? Like how, how does coming up with a title fit in the process for you? I mean, I've done both. Like with Lean Hospitals, that was pretty straightforward. We're going to write an introductory book about Lean for Hospitals. Like it was to a fault, straightforward, two words. But you want know, to think about like, what are people searching for? Mm-hmm. Can you get the domain name or a reasonable version of the domain name. Practicing Lean was a title before any of it was a book. That was the theme. Um, measures of success. I was writing the book for a long, for a while without really knowing a title. So I've kind of gone about it different ways and being open to feedback from people about title and subtitle. So, how, I mean, how'd you go about, did you, did you test alternatives for people solve problems? Did you test Title and subtitle. Yeah, so I, I I definitely tested the first one. So I, I've always said I want I want a title. I had three criteria that I used for the for the Hitchhiker's Guide. It's like I want it to be clear. I want it to be able to help explain what the book's about. I want it to be fairly concise, which I, I'm not sure I, I I met with the first one, but um, and I want it to be a little catchy, right? I want it to like you know you know kind of pique your your curiosity, if you will. So. So um, Hitchhiker's Guide came about, we, we were brainstorming, brainstorming. I have no idea what the other options were at this point. I'm sure somewhere there's a file that I, I probably don't have anymore with some Excel spreadsheet. That we didn't test, right? Social media wasn't as big a platform back then, and we didn't really test. But, you know, the Hitchhiker's Guide to Lean came up. Actually, Andy uh, came up with it, I'm pretty sure, but uh, I'm yeah. almost certain it was him. We added it to the list. I was quickly like, nah, um, but we added it to the list anyway. And I was in a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fan. And 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 first way I had to do some research, like, can we use it? Like it turns mm-hmm. out Hitchhiker's Guide is not a trademark. Um, mm-hmm. There was another, at the time, I think there was only one other Hitchhiker's Guide book out there, like the Hitchhiker's Guide to Roses or something really weird. Now there's a several of them, like I, yeah. you know, out, out there. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, wasn't trademarked. It wasn't like, you know, lean for dummies or this, the series. So we could use it. And it, it was, and I honestly don't know if it was like nothing else that we came up with caught our attention. And so it was the last one standing or it just grew hmm. on. Us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think if it wasn't for the subtitle lessons from the road, I'm not sure we would have gotten it out. Right. Because yeah. it's like lessons from the road kind of tells you what the hitchhiker's guide's about. And of course, there's the, the highway and and uh, the the very soft image of the map on the clouds that most people don't even don't even notice. Yeah. Um, with this one, I, I put it out there because I, I, I had ideas, but I wasn't sure which ones. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm not sure it was very helpful because, uh, you know, <laughs> I had like, you know, here's 10 options. Well, here's 20 votes for each one. Like, 
Yeah. It, it really was all over the map. I like this. I hate that. I, um, so, so ultimately it came down to, I, I, I kind of have a, a personal preference towards a slightly catchier title with a slightly more clear subtitle. Yeah. So that's kind of where I went with, I really wanted to be about people. That was really what the book's about is about people. So, so that, and that would have worked with either the title or a subtitle, but you know, I tried to sort of crowdsource titles and I'm not sure it helped a whole lot. Um, mm. if, if anything, it, it just convinced me that I should just, just make a decision and go with it. <laughs> I think a lot of online surveying is kind of stealth promotion and I've been guilty oh, of that yeah. myself. So I'm not, yeah, I, I, no question. I was also out there kind of, Hey, I, I don't have content to share with you. So I'll at least talk about this because I'm excited yeah. to talk about it. So no question. I was, I was also kind of helping to try to hopefully get people excited about it, but I, I did was like, I don't know which titles. I have a bunch of titles. They've been floating around in my brain for months. Um, you know, what do I, wh where do I go with this? So, yeah. so I, I did try to get some crowdsourcing help and even, I mean, it'll be like even cover designs. I I'd take like two yeah. different versions up to my family and two would like one, two would like the other. I'm like, Oh, thanks it, for that. It's like, very subjective, but <laughs> subjective. I, I, I did a lot of cover design testing and even though, you know, there's that expression that says you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, people do. People do. People do. Now, I, now I really like Measures of Success, I think is a really interesting title because it's it's catchy. It's about measurement, right? You get into the subtitle, you start to get more interested in, in what it's about. You know, Lean Hospitals, as you said, it was kind of, you know, on the nose, right? <laughs> like, well, I mean, it could have been called Lean Healthcare. That, it could have been. Yeah. It could have been. Um, but but there wasn't a, you know, you didn't have to overthink that. Right. You could have. Yeah. but You didn't have to. Um, but measures of success there, you know, you could have called it process behavior charts. Right. Um, or the subtitle could have been. So so the, 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 the title and subtitle is measures of success, react less, lead better, improve more. It could have been measures of success. The power of process behavior charts to help you run your business better. You know, yes. not exactly that, but. Right. So, but so I don't think people are out there searching for the phrase process behavior charts. Now, no. maybe I should have put a phrase like business metrics in the title, in the subtitle. I mean, yeah. And I, you know, I, I honestly didn't think a lot about search engine optimization in part because you know, as a book, um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not, well, maybe I just couldn't figure it out. I'm not sure what the exact words would be that would lead somebody to want this particular book. Yeah. In part, because I was trying to write about stuff that I didn't think was already well covered. Um, but I, I'm really interested in the, the measure of success title. And then what's interesting about your book, Practicing Lean is, I mean, that's a book I actually referenced the title of, mm -hmm. not to talk about the book, but to talk about the nature of the title and the yeah. fact that we learn through practicing. Um, and so I just, I just, you know, it just, the, the fact that the book is called that, um, you know, I, 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 I referenced that, I, I used that to recall the whole idea of practicing lean yeah. as, a, as a concept. So 
I think that's probably perhaps my favorite title of yours. Yeah. And, and even if people didn't read the book, that phrase, like that idea, you want an idea to spread. And I've got an episode of my lean podcast coming out soon with Nick Katko and Mike DeLuca. They wrote a book called Practicing Lean Accounting. And in the episode, and they give a nod, they're like, yeah, we heard you speak at the Lean Frontiers Lean Coaching Summit, where I'd given a talk on that theme. I was thrilled. I didn't feel like they were ripping me off or anything. It's not like I planned to do a whole series of books on practicing lean blank. Right. Um, I, you know, they, that resonated with the, with them and I'm grateful that they would sort of carry forward that, that phraseology. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's pretty cool that they, they did give you that nod. Um, but it is, it, it is, uh, it is a tough one, right? Coming up with a title that's meaningful, that works, that, that you're happy with, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I, I think practicing lean could have probably also been called the Hitchhiker's Guide to Lean: Lessons from the Road. Um, <laughs> if you think about the substance yeah. of the book, right, of different people sharing their stories of their travels yeah. and their experiences, that, that that title would have worked for that book too. Maybe. I the one I agonize over is Joe Schwartz and I did a book called Healthcare Kaizen. Would the book have sold more if we had just if we had used a phrase like continuous improvement rather than the Japanese word kaizen? Because yeah. we use the subtitle to explain. We use right. the phrase continuous improvement in the subtitle. Right. So it's hard to tell. Like was just the was the book too expensive or there's all these different factors. Maybe the title was just one of them. Yeah, and it and it's probably and, right? Uh no, no one particular reason, but you know, I, and this goes back to your target market and doing your lean, your lean canvas or business model canvas. If you say, well, people in healthcare are the target audience and what resonates with them. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, what's well, interesting when it comes to actual healthcare, they're as jargon heavy as anyone. Um, there's a lot of Latin for sure. There's a lot of Latin, right? You, you, you could use Latin. Um, Maybe, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would have been oh, that would have been yeah, that would that, that might have worked. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but when it comes to lean stuff and other business stuff in general, they kind of you know dismiss some of the jargon because they don't want to they don't want to be overrun by other domains, uh, and for a lot of good reasons, right? I mean, there's there's good reasons by that behind that bias, but that bias comes with a close-mindedness that, that that comes along with it, and so yeah, yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Is if that's your target market, um, you know, I, I would say this. You know, it did it close some doors to people buying it. Probably, did it convince the people that wanted that topic to buy mm-hmm. that specific book? Probably, yeah. absolutely. Right? That's that's the the two sides of that coin. So I just did a quick Google translate search, continuous improvement in healthcare, Latin would be continua melius in cures. Mm. That, that's no more catchy than Kaizen. Sounds healthcare fun. Kaizen. Sounds fun. There's a, there's a challenge <laughs> for, for one of us to work a Latin word into uh, the title or subtitle of one of our next books. So yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'll actually hope I lose that challenge, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna. Uh, not gonna I don't I'm think gonna, we're headed there. 
I'm going to blame the whiskey for that, that yeah. idea. Um, but uh, so gosh, so we, we should probably wrap up here. We, we've talked a lot about uh, books and the process. Do you, do you have a book on hand about whiskey? We're reading books about more than lean, right? Yeah. You know, I, I actually went to look cause I wasn't sure. I, I, I don't. Um, I, I have a couple books about wine. Um, I have a couple books about, uh, so, so the closest I actually have is, is a book about the Highlands and it's about, um, the, the clans of the Highlands. Um, but I, I don't actually, and I have, I have a book about coffee. I have the world Atlas of coffee. I have simple wine, uh, or simply wine, which is a great, great book. I don't actually have a book about whiskey, which seems, seems wrong. Um, so, uh, I should get you one. Yeah, you know, it's coming up on uh, coming up on Christmas. Maybe I'll mention that to, to my wife. Yeah. Um, she probably wouldn't wouldn't hear me say it, so uh, uh, I'm not sure it'll matter. But uh, yeah, I do not have one. But I, it looks like you probably do. I've got a couple. Um, I mean, one. I mean, there, there's different books, right? So there's a reference book like Jim Murray's Whiskey Bible 2021, and Jim Murray has been a fan of my friends at Garrison Brothers. He has given really good reviews to our friend David Meyer from Kentucky and Glens Creek Distilling. Um, there's a, a book I bought and I, I still need to read The Complete Whiskey Course. Now, this is a more intimidating yep. encyclopedia of history and knowledge about whiskey. Um, I should probably, yeah, that, that's one that. I that's one you should read while drinking whiskey. I, well, I, when I was reading the first couple chapters of People Solve Problems, the new book by Jamie Flinchbaugh, I sat down in um, a heavy leather chair <laughs> with some whiskey, and um, that, was, that was a good combination. Excellent. Plenty of books about whiskey. Plenty of books about whiskey, um, none of which have the answer. <laughs> drink what you like is the answer yes. to almost any question. Drink what um, you like, drink how you like it. Drink what you like, drink how you like it. Uh, lots of advice, none of it right. Um, uh, probably lots of it right, but you know, it is a very personal thing. So, yeah. All right. So why don't we wrap up with a, a very final question um, since we're talking about books. Uh, so I, I have a, uh, my old uh, former partner, my old firm that, that Andy and I ran, uh, uh, Ron Holcomb, great guy. Um, he used to say, every, almost every time he introduced himself, um, he would share a quote that he said was from Lou Holtz. I actually tried to look this up, could not find yeah. it, um, yeah. but it sounds good. And he said something, something like uh, that your life will change primarily because of the people you meet and the books you read. Mm. Right? He was kind of saying this to say, you know, I'm glad to meet you all. Um, so so what's, what's a book uh, that you've read that sort of changed your life? Um, I mean, I'll throw out two that to me are very related. Um, one is Dr. Deming's book, Out of the Crisis. And then the other book is Understanding Variation by the statistician Donald Wheeler. Those books have been, I was fortunate to read those both early in my career. And the, the, those are ones I'll point to as favorites. As much as I like some of the books in the, the lean literature, those two really stand out for me. Well, and I think for most of us, you know, when you say what book changed your life, it, it generally was things that set you on a pathway and probably pretty early. And that's definitely true for me as well. So my mine's Man's Search for Meeting by Viktor Frankl. 
Um, That's a much more serious book. Right? It's a pretty serious book. It's I'm not sure uh, what the right reading environment is around that. But if you read um, Simon Sinek's uh, Start With Why, in some ways it's very similar in message. But um, going back to the beginning theme that all ideas have already been had, um, this might be an evidence evidence of that. And and of course, he goes back and refers to people earlier, but but really living a life of purpose, um, mm-hmm. having a purpose, let that drive you, uh, is 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 really central, and and that's been that's been key to me as I've I've made made big decisions. So that's that's on my shelf uh, today, and and probably you know I'm sure always will be, um, always a always a reminder of uh, of what matters. So that's a. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a good book for me. It definitely had an impact. Well, great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And um, as we wrap up here, my secondary theme was, you know, finish that bottle. So I mentioned Garrison Brothers already in the context of the Jim Murray Whiskey Bible. I had just a splash left in this bottle of Garrison Brothers Honeydew, honey-infused whiskey. So I, I went ahead and finished that. Wow. So you're finishing all kinds of things. So uh, um Hashtag goals. <laughs> so that sounds worse than it could to say. I finished two bottles of whiskey today. There were there was a small amount left in each. Yeah, it's all how you say it. But now there's room for more. Now there's yeah. more for, room for more on the shelf. Yeah. So um, we'll figure out what our theme is going to be for the eventual episode 31. We don't have to worry about are there there. I don't think there are any 31 year old whiskeys on the market, but. You know, thank you for listening and you, you can find all of our episodes, whether it's me and Jamie or uh, a guest or a co-host, you can find all of those at leanwhiskey.com. You can spell it whiskey, K-E-Y or whiskey with a K-Y, depending on your own preference. Or you can also go to leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey. Yep. And you can go to jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. Um, so I... Uh, Appreciate you doing that. Um, you know, look for us on on wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, you know, Apple, Spotify, Google. I uh, really appreciate it uh, if you if you find us there. And if you do, you know, if you you're willing to take a couple of seconds, please uh, rate or review the podcast as well. So with that, I have a tiny, like I have a sip. Of, of the Scarison Brothers Honeydew, that is a bottle that I would repurchase and um, have have repurchased before. So, with that, Jamie, thank you for talking about the new book. Uh, we'll, we'll cheers, congratulations um, to the near release of People Solve Problems. Thank you to episode thirty. Cheers, cheers.